Right now, we're continuing with a series called Table Talks, and it's kind of born out of who we are as a community. When we moved out here, as the video said, uh, summer 2017, uh, we didn't have any church, friend, family relationships, but we did know how to do one thing, and that was eat around a dinner table. And so uh, I've said this in previous weeks, but this is my dinner table, um, and I have a folding table still in my house. I don't know if I've really used it up to this point because it's not nearly as inviting as this one. But uh, we get to, we, we had a chance to invite people around it and to gather around it and see some beautiful things come out of it. And so what we're doing right now is in the Gospel of Luke, there are multiple instances where Jesus gathers around a dinner table or he invites people around a dinner table and there's food and there's fellowship involved. And each time he does gather around it, he teaches us something. Not just about himself, but about who we are and where we're going and what it means in our everyday lives here today. And so we've spent three weeks walking through that, and this is week four. And so we are in Luke chapter 19 today. And so if you would walk with me, um, we're going to read the first ten verses together. And then we're going to pray and we're going to continue forward. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, I'm reading out of the ESV. And it says this, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly, and all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Perhaps one of the most profound verses in the entire New Testament, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know, it's funny because we have this story, and whether you're a Christian or not, uh, wherever you find yourself on your faith journey this morning, I hope you feel welcome because uh, this story in particular, you've likely heard it at some point. Uh, It is Sunday school to a T in the sense that you've, you've heard it, you've talked about it, you've seen a, probably a play about it, there's been like this cheesy Christian movie that's probably been made about it that you've had to watch at some point, and it's this story that we seem to understand to some degree, but I really do believe that there's something profound for us to understand around it. So, uh, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this morning and what we get to gather around, for your word and for the, your community and what you invite us into. I just pray that our hearts are ready and open to receive all that you have in store for us, for all the families that are suffering right now in the city of Pittsburgh, for all the, all the communities that are mourning and grieving, Jesus, I just pray that you make yourself so real and comfort them, comfort them in their time of need and time of hurt. I just pray that you would make us advocates and give us opportunities to to reflect who you are in dark places. Thank you for this moment and uh, this table that we get to gather around. I pray that we receive something fresh this morning. Thank you for all that you do and more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So the question I wanted to lead off with this morning was, uh, what makes me significant? What makes you significant? Why do you matter? What about you gives you value? Is it what people say about you? Is it the fact that you 
put food on the table? Is it your ability to, to speak in a classroom if you're a teacher? We, we got a lot of teachers in the house. Is it, is it the way that people uh, perceive you in your friend group as perhaps uh, the confidant, the steady one, the fun one? Is that where you find your significance? Is that where you find your value? And if there's nothing that immediately comes to mind, let me give you a, an exercise to maybe discover what it might be. If you were to reflect upon, perhaps there was a moment in your life where you had a, uh, a response that seemed slightly unreasonable. Maybe you had a new friend come into your friend group and they're, they're pretty funny and suddenly you find yourself trying to manufacture situations to prove how funny you are. As if your spot was taken. And we, and we do these different things in different situations in order to, to hold on and to grasp what we believe is our significance. And, and it's born from, from belief systems. And sometimes when we think of the word or the phrase belief systems, it's wide and it's expansive and it seems to apply to everything on a macro level. But when we consider the specific moments of life, we have belief systems which influence the way we treat people, the way that we interact with one another, and the ways in which we find value and the way that we, ways that we approach situations. For example, myself, I approach a specific situation uh, with a really negative perspective because of previous experiences, and that situation is group projects in school. They are awful. They're the worst things. Um, and I, I think that there's many people in the room who agree with, it, agree with this sentiment, and that means that we're all doing it wrong somehow. I don't know how we all dislike group projects, and yet uh, we still don't get it right. But anyways, I dislike group projects, especially like in, during my, uh, my bio degree, I remember the very first day of classes. I walk into a, a chemistry class. It's like a class of 400 people at the University of Calgary and I sit down and everyone's buzzing and everyone's excited and the professor comes to the front and draws our attention and then uh, the dean comes in through the back and he makes his way to the front and he welcomes us and he's excited for us and then he drops this bomb and he, he asks uh, how many of you are in this program and in this program and in this program and someone then he asks how many of you are in the biosciences program which is the one I was in and I would say 90% of the room raised their hand. And he's like, good, good, good. And he's like, how many of you are doing this so that you can get into med school? About 89% uh, <laughs> raised their hand. And then he's like, great, well, you're gonna have a great year. About two of you are gonna make it to med school. And then he walked out. <laughs> and it was kind of like the starting gun for the rat race of university in that program because the minute he said that everyone was acutely aware that man they were going to have to be working to make sure that they were one or of those two individuals that was going to make it to med school and I remember forever on after that moment we had a lot of group projects but there was this odd dynamic of competition that existed in the midst of collaboration. That you were trying to like get the best mark together, but you were trying to be better at the other person at getting the best mark together in a really odd way. And there was like this weird uh, tension that existed and you would have like passive aggressive comments that would be passed around. And it's this, I think everyone resonates with this, that you have these moments where you're just like, I don't know why I feel competitive with them, but I feel like I have to be better and I have to do better. And we, we kind of created like this hierarchy in the group and there's a certain, there's like certain roles within each group project 
right? There's like the one person that feels like they should just do everything, the one person that feels like they should hear everyone out, the one person that doesn't really care what's going on, and the one person that is just not sure what's going on. And so like you've got all those roles filled and there's a hierarchy to it and everyone feels important within it and then this is this weird combination of, of what we think and what we believe and, and what we think about ourselves and what we think about others and it created this, this weird sense of, of competition and we were almost like pitted against each other. And in the pursuit of like significance and to achieve success, it's kind of what happens in our everyday existence. We are told that it is nice, it is good to celebrate one another. But man, in, in the realities of our heart, sometimes it is very difficult to actually celebrate the success of someone else. And, and in our pursuit of success, we connotate, we, we, we associate that with significance. And then we associate significance with purpose, and then purpose with contentment. And so we say to ourselves, if I want to be content, I need to be successful. And then everyone's got different markers of what success is. The other thing that became so clear to me in those group projects, in those group environments, is I came from a high school where the graduating class was less than 10 people, and so I became acutely aware that I was no longer the smartest kid in my class. So moving from 10 to like 400, I was like, man, I do, I do not have the same drive and the same capacity as some of these kids that they've just been pushing way harder and way longer than I have. And uh, being acutely aware of this, my year one of university was just this cycle of continuous discovery of how I was lacking <laughs> and how I fell short. I remember the first midterm that I got out of. I walked in, it was, it was a physics midterm. I sat down, and all I remember about this midterm is that they had two questions that were multiple parts, and they were both around the idea of Superman, and that's all I knew about it. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know anything else. I blanked completely, and this was the first time I'd ever felt that way in an exam, and it completely demoralized me. It, it destroyed any sense of value, any sense of like significance, and that was the beginning of my university career. Welcome to University of Calgary, right? Um, but I learned a lot about what I was lacking in those moments. And, and this morning, as I was considering this text this week, the idea of where we're found lacking and what it leads us towards is what I was wrestling with. Because this is the, this is the thought I wanted to build around. That often our, our hidden obstacles are internal battles of overcompensating. A guy named Alfred Adler in 1907, he coined the term overcompensation. And he said that if people feel inferior and weak in one area, they try to compensate it, compensate for it somewhere else. And so our actions, our behaviors, and speech, uh, they're not only influenced by our conscious mind, but the elements that we feel inferior and lacking in, they impact our subconscious mind, and they force us to create these, these defense these defense mechanisms, these coping mechanisms, and we need them to some degree. Uh, they say that we need them to some degree for our mental health, but he specifically talks about the idea of overcompensation actually being a very dangerous defense mechanism. He says this. He says, this defense mechanism can be undertaken with the objective of dominating and controlling others and exerting one's superiority over them. Therefore, it's not driven by the objective of excelling to feel good about oneself, 
but it's driven by the objective to put others down. And so I was considering this, this idea of overcompensation, and I was like, I do that all the time. And then I was drawn to this text, and, I, and I was, as I was reading it through, I was considering all the moments of overcompensation in it. So we're going to just walk right back to the text real quick. And let me just provide a little context around it. Luke 19 is the beginning of Jesus' final week here on earth. And all the years so far have been building up to this climactic week, this important moment in history and in the life of Jesus. And, and the gospel writers, they recognized it as well. And you can see this based upon how many chapters they commit to different parts of Jesus' life. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they only commit four chapters to, to the birth and to uh, the genealogy and to a tidbit of Jesus' teenage years. And then there's 85 chapters committed to the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And then there's 29 chapters committed specifically to the last week. And then 13 chapters specifically to the final 24 hours. So it, it's a clear point that he's leading us towards. That there's something significant that we're moving towards. And, and it's important, but... In Luke 19, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and he stops on his way to Jericho. And Jericho is below sea level. Jerusalem's above sea level, so it's a steep climb. But Jerusalem, uh, sorry, Jericho in that time and place was considered to be, like Josephus called it, like the fattest city. So in our modern context, like think PH fat, because it was like wealthy, it was, it was on top of things, it was, it was the place to be, it was the Las Vegas of the day. And it, it was... Las Vegas, Palm Springs, and it's funny that it was a tax collector that we're talking about because the origins of Las Vegas are tied to mafia, and then we've got this picture of Zacchaeus, and I think it's really relevant because the ancient, he's like this ancient mafia who's really wealthy, he's, he's really well off, he's got influence, he's got authority, and he's not loved by any means, and he's, he's accumulating wealth in a really uh, deceiving manner. And the passage says that there was a man named Zacchaeus, and, and he was rich. And in the previous passage, in, in the chapter before this, there's a story where Jesus meets a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler asks Jesus, how is it that I should be able to achieve everlasting life? And Jesus says, well, sell everything. And the man walks away disappointed. And we get to this, this conclusion that it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. And it's not impossible, but it's difficult. And then in the following chapter, we see Zacchaeus, and it's like this juxtaposition of two colliding stories of rich men and their response in these moments. And it continues, and it says that Zacchaeus sought to see who Jesus was, and he was short of stature. And historians and archaeologists, they try and get an idea of how short was short. What was he actually around? And based upon how high doorways were about 2,000 years ago, they, they approximated that the average man was about five feet tall. And so if we think about that and what they considered short, he was a little man, like, like Tyrion Lannister. Think of that. And uh, it was a shorter than average height. And isn't it funny that even in our time and our era, that we still associate people based upon these physical characteristics? When you talk about someone, you know them as, as the tall guy, short, 
skinny, wide, thick, whatever adjective you can think of, we associate based upon that physical element. And so he was a short guy that came up with this clever idea. Uh, He was a man of great station in the day, and so what he does next is, is fascinating because he begins to run, and he runs to the tree, and then he climbs it. So think of your local MP that decides that they wanted to see Jesus, and they're running, and they climb a tree to see Jesus. And it, and it doesn't make sense, and it seems odd, and it doesn't seem to fit with anything. It's like these moments that we have with friends where they do things that we don't expect. Uh, just recently, we got a chance to marry off Hannes, and we took him out to enjoy a little bit of a night together, and that was awesome. And we went to the Stormcrow Bar in downtown Vancouver, and it happened to be karaoke night. So some of us knew that it was karaoke, that it was karaoke night. Some of us knew that he had a little bit of a propensity for karaoke. And if you know Hannes, Hannes would not come across as someone initially as that he had a love and a deep love for karaoke. Um, but we show up there and we're having a good night and we're enjoying ourselves and then he, uh, he gets the book with all the songs and he takes his time. He wants to get the right song. And I don't know what's going to happen. I've never seen him in his element. And so he, he closes the book and he says, I'm ready and he makes his way over to the mic and this bar is jam-packed. And he starts to break out into a little Johnny B. Good, a little Back to the Future, and the place goes wild. People were losing it, they were singing along with him, they were dancing with him, and I was so confused. It's like, who is this person? And that's a positive moment of seeing something really interesting and really different. And this is a negative moment for Zacchaeus because nobody likes Zacchaeus. I can imagine him running to the tree and people are like, I wonder if I can just like trip him. (laughs) I wonder if I can stop him from getting where he wants to go so badly. And And it's this weird situation that we see in front of us. And so he climbs up the sycamore tree and you can still see those trees in Jericho. And we know that he's, he's a tax collector, and so let's, let's review what a tax collector was in that time and place, because the Romans, they needed money to feed the Roman machine, and, but whenever they went to people and they were trying to take money from them, it didn't go particularly well, and so what they ended up doing is they ended up franchising off areas that they, that they owned, and they had individuals bid on those areas to gather the taxes for them. And so at this point, Zacchaeus is a straight traitor because he's taking money from the Jewish people to give it to this Roman giant. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has already done everything that he can to separate himself from his own people. And no one likes to pay taxes, let's be honest, but it was nothing in comparison to what was kind of going on in that time and place. There was like a list of taxes that they had to pay. There was a a poll tax, and that was just to breathe the air, the Roman air. If you lived there, you had to pay that tax. There was an income tax, an import tax, a road tax, a harbor tax, a fish tax. You had to pay per net and per single fish caught. You had to pay a ground tax. You had to pay one-fifth of all the grain and wine that you owned. You You had to give that back to the Romans. You had to pay a cart tax. 
And so if you rolled a cart down the street, you had to pay per wheel on the cart to the Roman government. So there was a lot of tax that had to be paid. And unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately for Zacchaeus, he was the one gathering it. And the way it worked, there was no strict structure that the Romans said, you pay us what you owe us, and then whatever else you can get for yourself, that's yours. So we can see how that system could probably go sideways. Uh, Derek, could I grab that ladder? You're here somewhere. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so I'm not going to claim ever to be particularly handy. You know all those like personality tests that tell you what you're good at? My thing that's always lowest is anything to do with like craftsmanship or something to do with my hands. Like it was like a spiritual gifts test and there were lots of good ones and then I barely tracked as like alive on the craftsmanship part of it. So I can't say that I've spent a lot of time on a ladder over the period of my life, but certain things that I do understand. In order to climb to the following step, I have to put pressure on the one below. Fair? I'm, 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 not, I'm not speaking out of turn. Everybody ag agrees with this. When, when climbing a ladder, you have to step on the rung below to elevate yourself. And, and in many ways, this was the journey of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was overcompensating for his physical stature by striving for economic success, but he was doing so at the cost of relationships in his life. He had nobody that really cared for him, that really loved him. He had all the money in the world, but nothing that specifically made him well, that made him whole. And he stepped on people on his way to success. But picture with me, depending who you guess, I guess you have at the top of this, this ladder, if someone is standing at the bottom and someone's ascended to the top, they're isolated, they're separate, they're alone, and they're, they're in a way, all these elements of the ideas of being lost are found at the top of the ladder. And when you're at the bottom and you're looking at the top, it's not the greatest view in the world, depending who you're talking about, I guess. I asked, I asked the team before we started today, I asked who is your... Uh, your like, childhood crush, and so maybe then you would enjoy the view, but um, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> Zacchaeus was, 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 he was likely disregarded because of, of his height, and in turn, he was overcompensating. He was, he was stepping on people in his pursuit of success, and he had allowed the thing that he was deficient in to become the thing that he was defined by. And every decision he had made in his life was to, to prove that his deficiency was not something that was going to stop him from finding success. And it's interesting, inside of these defining moments in our life, we always have choice. And choosing is, is one of the most spiritual moments that we can share as individuals because choice is something that's given to us. And when you choose something, you have an opportunity to create something. And when you're creating something, it's a, reflective, it's a reflection of who God is in us. So choice is something that we're given. It's choice is an opportunity that we have. And Zacchaeus, he has this choice every single day that he's stepping on people in the pursuit of success. And so what we know about Zacchaeus, he's hated as a tax collector. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a traitor. He's taken from the poor to give to himself. He, he's, he's abandoned the people that would seem to be his own. 
in the pursuit of something that he believed that would make him successful, that would make him happy, that would somehow compensate for his deficiency. And yet in this story, based on all we know, he responds in such a way that would seem opposite to everything up until this point. So he climbs this sycamore fig tree. And he runs through the crowd and he gets to that tree and, and he sees Jesus there and, he, and, he, and Jesus calls up to him and says, come down from that tree, I'm coming to your house. And, and, and in a way, Jesus is asking him to do something that is the opposite of what he's done his entire life. His entire life has been fixated around the idea of climbing the corporate ladder of success of finding success by stepping upon others, but Jesus calls him down from the tree and says that I'm coming to you. And then people begin to murmur and people begin to say negative things about Zacchaeus. And we kind of romanticize this story and we say that, man, Zacchaeus came down and he met Jesus and it was a beautiful moment. But if in the reality of all we know about Zacchaeus, I would contend that Zacchaeus inviting or having Jesus in his home was probably with the wrong motivation. He probably saw Jesus as, as a way to get people to, to look at him a certain way. Man, everyone's trying to look at Jesus, and Jesus wants to hang out with me. I'm going to go prepare a meal for him. There's something that happens from the tree to the table that the Bible doesn't specifically record. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, and, and they make their way to, to the table, to Zacchaeus' home, and they share that meal together. And there's this absence of text, this absence of explanation. But, but perhaps the absence of an explanation speaks louder than any statement would. Because salvation came that day to the house of Zacchaeus, but the only thing that changed in that house was the presence of Jesus. There was no ritual that went the perfect way. There was no right words that were said that did the exactly the right thing in the right moment. It was simply the presence of Jesus in his house that brought salvation to it and changed everything. And then Zacchaeus responds in this manner where he says that I'm going to give half of all that I own. Let me backtrack for a quick second. There, it says that they go to his house. And that Zacchaeus, he stood up. And I found this really fascinating, that he stood up in this moment. So the thing that he was feeling most deficient in was now on full display. Imagine with me, everyone is gathered around the table, they're sitting. And now Zacchaeus stands up and he exposes that which he would have found himself lacking. But something had changed at the table. Something had changed the way he thought about himself, the way he thought about others. The thing that he counted as significant had been transformed with the presence of Jesus in that moment. And he responds with this overwhelming sense of generosity. He says, I'm going to give half of all that I own and I'm going to repay four times the amount of those I have robbed. And this idea of generosity is a beautiful one. And it's almost like this easy message of when we meet Jesus, when we have our lives transformed, generosity pours out of us. But this, this blew my mind. In the Old Testament law, there was three different responses in the way that they expected a thief or a robber to pay his dues. 
If someone stole something and they confessed, they were expected to pay it back along with 20%. If someone stole something and was caught, they would have to pay it back two times. But if someone stole something and was not able to return it and was caught, they would have to pay it back four times. Zacchaeus' decision of how much he was going to repay was not a random number of generosity. There's this moment of generosity, yes, but I would actually say that there's this beautiful moment of confession as well. Because he's saying to everybody who's there that I haven't just robbed people, but I have destroyed lives along my way. I have taken from them what I cannot give back. I'm in need of more than simply making up for a mistake. I'm in need of paying the full penalty. And the idea of confession is, is often thought of really oddly in, in our society because it's, it's kind of tied to the idea of a priest on one side of a curtain and, and then us on the other and we're confessing our sins. But I want you to think of confession like this. Confession is not for, for the purposes of making us feel bad about ourselves or putting us down. Think of it this way. If I have a watch on and I leave it up on the platform and then I leave the room and then somebody comes up and they grab the watch and... Mike is standing in the back and he notices that happens and he comes and tells me, someone took your watch. And then my response in that moment is, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I can get another watch. And just completely move on. And then the next time I see that individual, they come and say, hi. I have no issue. I have no problem. I've already forgiven. I've already moved on. In this situation, who is actually feeling bad? This person who took the watch with the knowledge that I knew. And suddenly, they're bound by their mistake. And this is what Zacchaeus experiences in this moment. Confession led him to a place of freedom. And in the midst of this freedom, he was able to experience this immense desire of generosity. Transformation didn't happen at the tree, it happened at the table. And Jesus invites us to this table every single time when we fall short, where we find ourselves lacking. Because we mark ourselves as insufficient, as unable to, to reach the goals of success and of significance in our stories. And Jesus, every single time, he says, come to me and find rest. For I have come to seek and save those who are lost. And Zacchaeus, in the actual physical sense, maybe didn't seem lost, but he had climbed the ladder of significance in his life. And he was isolated. He was separated. He was abandoned by the people that he thought were his own. And in the reality of it, he was lost. But Jesus came and found him and we can make the wrong decision over and over and over and over again but the beauty and truth of the gospel and of Jesus is that he comes and he pursues us he seeks after us 
He so desperately desires to build a relationship with each and every one of us, with Zacchaeus, the traitor, the thief, the liar, and yet he says, I love you unconditionally. I'm coming to your home today. First, I'm going to bring salvation to your house. Not just freedom for eternity, but freedom in the here and now. Not just freedom for you, but freedom through you. And it's this beautiful picture that we're presented every single time. That the love of Jesus overwhelms our deficiencies. It overwhelms all the moments that we fall short. That it meets us in our place of despair, in our hurt, and it says that I love you still the same and even more than you could ever imagine. And I have more for you in store than you could ever believe. And we're invited upon this journey where Jesus says, come and gather around the table. Come and consider who I am. And you don't have to say all the right things. You don't have to do all the right things. You don't have to get all your checkboxes filled. But just recognize that I am with you. Because the presence of Jesus is enough in our stories to transform it. So wherever you find yourself today, when you consider what is the area in our life that we mark ourselves as lacking and we hold as our identity. Maybe it's a physical attribute, an emotional attribute, a relational one, a spiritual one, and we, we hold it as this burden and we, when people ask who we are, it's kind of like the first thing that pops to our head. Where we fall short. Are you living a life based upon your lacking and you're living a life that's trying to overcompensate? You're making decisions to overcompensate for what you perceive as, as missing in your story, as falling short. And it's this incredible incredible invitation that Jesus gives us that in the midst of where you think you fall short I will meet you there that I desire to know you to see you that Jesus is not an absent God separate from us but he's intimately desiring to pursue us to know us for us to know him Zacchaeus went from knowing, wanting to know who Jesus was to knowing who Jesus is. Maybe that's your story this morning, that you were asking, who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? And perhaps this moment is one where you're considering, well, is it possible that this is who he is? That he is someone to fight for me, to advocate on my behalf to show me love that I've always needed and desired in my story over and over and over again. And in our hurt, in our heartbreak, we get to bring that to Jesus. In our, in our lacking and in our struggle, we get to bring that to Jesus. And in our triumph and in our victory, we get to bring that to Jesus because the presence of Jesus is enough to transform our stories. And it could be something little in your mind. Jesus cares. wants to be part of that could be something that you feel is too far gone. 
He wants to be a part of that story as well. So I'm going to pray. And I would invite you, whatever it is that you're carrying as this burden of lack, this burden of deficiency, of shortcoming, do not let that identify you. Give it to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we welcome you into this place. Thank you that the call that you give to us every time is that you've come to seek and save those who are lost. And Jesus, we are lost without you. And in these moments of, of reflection, as we reflect upon our own lives and our own areas where we seem to find ourselves lacking, Jesus, I just pray that you forgive us of our need to overcompensate and the people that have been hurt along the way. But thank you that in the midst of our wrong decisions, our, our, our choices that have hurt others, you've continued to pursue us. You've continued to make a way. And in the here and now, in this place, we just give our burdens to you. Relational, emotional, physical, whatever we have decided we are lacking and we have carried it as a burden and we have identified ourselves as only that. Jesus, we, we just are so grateful that you see us as so much more. That you call us down from the tree and you invite us to the table and you transform us to not just be at the table forevermore, but to take it and to be generous in our world today. So lead us this week into new beginnings, into new conversations. Help us to have moments that we get to live out this generosity from transformation, that it's not just a moment that remains with us on a Sunday morning where we consider it as a good thought, but it actually challenges us to live in a different way to treat people differently, to, to think differently, to operate differently in our spheres of influence. Jesus, let us be a reflection of the transformation in our own lives everywhere we go. And take our burden. For you are the only one that can. We're so grateful for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.